compulsive overeater. Well, that's the C of OCD, and that is a it's a recognized psychiatric disorder. The uh, problem of addiction originates in the mind, but it's also in the biochemistry. Some people have a biochemical sensitivity to some substances. I choose not to eat any refined sugar or any refined grain, and I just find that my life is better and happier that way. Welcome to Food Addiction, the podcast that helps you understand the disease of food addiction and presents the solution. We talk with experts and counselors who treat food addiction as a substance use disorder and with people who share their stories of recovery. The podcast is brought to you by the International School of Food Addiction Counseling and Treatment. Visit infectschool.com to become a certified food addiction professional. Stay tuned for this inspiring and informative episode. Today on Food Addiction, The Problem and the Solution, we welcome Michael Prager. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, glad you're here. I'm going to introduce you with your bio and then dive into some questions, if that's okay. Yep. Great. Michael Prager is an author and journalist uh, located in Arlington, Massachusetts. He spent time editing at newspapers in Ohio, Florida, Massachusetts, Connecticut before returning to Greater Boston in 1993. After 14 years at the Boston Globe, he accepted a buyout offer and he departed in 2007. He spent time writing and working in the sustainability movement. His son was born in 2009 and he spent some time as a stay-at-home dad. He wrote the book, Fat Boy, Thin Man, which profiles his struggle with food addiction and he ultimately surrendered to the fact and learned to enjoy his life in recovery. Michael spent many years dieting, including three summers at fat camp, and was a patient of Dr. Atkins himself following the Atkins diet and had two separate 130-pound weight losses, yet he reached his 34th birthday weighing 365 pounds. He felt trapped by the relentless compulsion to eat huge amounts of addictive trigger foods, the story in the book tells us that certain foods can be addictive, uh, more addictive even than cocaine, nicotine, and alcohol. Addicted to multiple substances, he was surrounded by family and friends who were also trapped in addiction. He entered a food addiction recovery program ultimately in 1999 and has spent the last 25 years uh, working in food addiction recovery. Ultimately, he allowed himself to be guided toward a different path and is now sustaining 155-pound weight loss. During his recovery, he has discovered that mainstream medicine offers no effective or safe treatment for the obese and suffering food addicts. So again, welcome, Michael. Thanks. Yeah, I loved your book. Loved Thank it. Thank you. We host um, different kinds of guests. Um, we host professionals like Dr. Robert Lustig, uh, Dr. Paul Early, Teresa Wright, who I know you worked with, and we host food addicts. And you have the distinction of sort of being both. You've written books about your journey and food addiction, and um, and you are a food addict. So, as I say, I love the book, Fat Boy, Thin Man, and we're going to put the uh, reference in our notes so people can buy it. Um, it was a really vulnerable and honest account of your life's journey to overcome food addiction. And like me, um, it took you a while to get in. And um, I would say after reading the book, I would you know, make the observation that you were like me, you were pretty resistant. So talk about talk about resistance and what stood in your way. And we'll talk about the book. I want to say almost everything I say, some of it is original, but almost everything I say is stuff I heard from other people. And I'm just, uh, they shared it with me so I could get better. And now I'm sharing it with other people so that they can get better. Yes. Uh, just want to make, uh, I, I always, whenever I mention my book, I like to say that the second sentence is, well, I'm no guru. And uh, the first sentence is everybody's looking for a guru but that's not me. So I just like <laughs> yeah. to make that clear. Uh, okay. Uh, I was, uh, I live in Boston and we have a phrase called wicked smart. And I thought I was wicked, wicked smart. And I. Smart. You're saying that's a Boston accent, but wicked that smart. That is correct. Right. Yes. I got it. 
you couldn't tell me what I needed because I obviously knew I was smarter than you and I had it all figured out. And, you know, I don't, that's arrogance for sure, for sure. But, you know, if you can, somebody said, uh, if you can back it up, it ain't bragging. And the fact is, is that I couldn't back it up. I'm so smart, but I could not look at the circumstances, assess the situation to know that I couldn't back it up because I was, uh, you know, in my early 30s, I was as big as a house. I was miserable. I was lonely, but I was isolated, which is yes. not the way you resolve loneliness. And so I, you know, I was sure that if I just did things better, took the information I had and applied it better, everything would be okay. And yeah. uh, that was not true. Yeah. That my, my experience is that was not true. Right. Yeah. We know that food addiction, um, uh, some of the smartest people I've seen in 12 step recovery rooms. And I think I'm pretty smart. And I think that's my thinking and my intelligence, your intelligence, you're highly intelligent. I respect your um, command of the English language and your vocabulary after reading the book. I had to look a couple things up. <laughs> um, so yeah, that stands in our way because um, you were like me. You, When you dieted, you were really good at it, um, disciplined, and um, you lost weight. You were very successful at losing weight. But then as food addicts, we gain it back. So you've lost 130 pounds a couple of times. You've tried, you know, done these diets and you were at a food uh, eating disorder program. But you seem to get the click from what I read, the, what I call the click, which is you got it when you went to Acorn, which in 1999, it was operated by Phil Wardell and Mary Fushi, who began a food addiction recovery program called Acorn. And you attended the five-day intensive in 1999, and it's called now Shift by Recovery and is owned by Amanda Leaf. And for our listeners, it's foodaddiction.com. So we're going to talk about your story, but let's start by talking about Phil Wardell. Uh, we lost Phil on September 9th, uh, 2023, last year. And I know you and Phil were friends, and uh, I know Phil and worked with him. I went to Shift uh, in May of 2019 when Amanda first bought Acorn and turned it into Shift, changed the name. And Phil was there um, during the uh, during the intensive that I attended. I attended as in the leadership training program, but I attended as a student, so I know what goes on there. So talk about Phil and the legacy he's left. Phil Wardell around awareness of food addiction and and what he meant to your recovery. Well, <clears throat> we talked earlier about limiting our answers, and when I talk about Phil, I really have to be cognizant about that. You know, uh, yeah. you you know that you just mentioned two things: uh, his effect on my recovery and his uh, effect on the landscape of food addiction in the popular culture. And uh, those are both those are different questions, and they could go on for the answers could go on forever. Yeah. You know, obviously, uh, I'd start with the personal. He did things for me that uh, my parents couldn't do. And, you know, part of it is, is that he wasn't my parent, you know, and so I was willing, more willing. But uh, he had a way of reaching out to me. I, 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 I try to speak from the eye whenever I can uh, not describe what it was like for other people to be around him. But it's my opinion that what he did for yes. me, he was also able to do for a vast number of people. I mean, thousands and thousands of people. He was also. Uh, I don't know. He was also wicked smart. I mean, he was really very brilliant. Yes, he was. Had a, had a PhD and uh, spent, you know, right up until he died, he was working on books that would uh, further his crusade that we, uh, that uh, food addiction needs to be understood by individuals. Because if you don't know you have something, you can't get help for it, or maybe the appropriate right. help for it. And for the medical community, uh, for me, it's nutritionists uh, who have to understand, you know, uh, nutritionists, uh, the, most of the nutritionists I've met, both professionally and, and uh, as a uh, recovering food addict, want to make it okay. What's, what's the problem you have eating? Oh, chocolate? Okay, I'll teach you how to eat that, which would, you know, apparently works for or can work for people who are not food addicts. But they're not understanding that food addiction exists. They're, they're, they're adamant that food addiction doesn't exist. 
means that they're never going to say, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't eat any. Right. You know, there are lots of things that I don't eat anymore, you know, for decades. And it doesn't mean I don't still like them. I don't still like to eat them. It means that even if I like them, they don't like me and it's better off when I don't have them. Anyway, right. uh, yeah. we're talking about, we're talking about Phil. We want to get back to Phil. You were talking uh, about Phil. So yeah, he's, he was very intelligent, uh, his understanding of food addiction. And we're going to talk about, in your case, powerlessness and denial, which Phil, those were big themes for, for Phil and his work. Um, so anything else you want to say about Phil? We're going to go on to your childhood. Yes. Yes. I just, uh, uh, he was, he had a vision and he was really dedicated, uh, at his memorial service, uh, last month, I think, uh, somebody called him the godfather of food addiction. And, uh, he's not the only person by any means who has carried this fight, you know, but, uh, he carried it, uh, with dedication for decades and with, uh, you know, just, he knew where he wanted to go, and he went there right up until uh, he could. Uh, he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, he was a great, great man. Did a lot for food addiction. He was a prolific writer, very good writer. Uh, let's talk about your childhood. You say in the book uh, that your father had difficulty showing love. He was a bit of a workaholic, and your mother liked to control. And uh, we know <laughs> that. Hi, Dad. Uh, yeah we know that um we know that food addiction is a brain disease that when some of us eat things we start to get obsessed with them we think about them we make deals with ourselves we we, that we will not eat more and we can't help ourselves that's the powerlessness but also with food addicts like me and like you we had childhoods that were less than ideal for us Um, I had parents, my mother was emotionally shut down. My dad was an alcoholic and food addict and I didn't feel lovable. And, uh, so you were about my age, you're one year older and, and, um, talk about your childhood and, and how it influenced that, that may have set you up and contributed to being a food addict. Okay. The first time I ever said, I love you to anyone, those three words in a row uh, was, uh, I was in my mid twenties and I'm not just talking about, you know, romantically, I'm talking about ever. Okay. So, so, you know, that's, it was a different time. And, uh, I don't think that was that uncommon at the time. Uh, mm. I tell my son, I love him every day and that's this time, you know? Uh, and so I don't, you know, it's true. You know, those characterizations are exactly how I painted them in the book. They're both gone. They won't be hurt by this. Uh, I right. think they both read it, so they know, knew it before they went. Anyway, the point is yeah. that uh, they did the best they could. And Do you, you believe know, that? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. You know, I think of uh, people in recovery as being like this uh, bulwark, this uh, wall, you know, parents did to kids who became parents and did to kids who became parents and did to kids. And it just through history, all this crap. And we who find recovery day at a time, um, are like making the commitment among other things. I mean, it's not even the first thing we think about, uh, not even the 10th thing we think about. We're making the commitment to, uh, not pass out, pass on all that crap to our children. So they mm-hmm. didn't have that. And right. uh, yeah, they, they did their best. And I, you know, I can easily, I'm a parent now, I can easily see how I would uh, uh, try my hardest to fix the problem that my son is experiencing and fail at it. So that's yeah. all that happened. That's all that happened. Yeah. Yeah. My, you know, sometimes I think, God, is that the best you could have done, you know? And, and so, but my parents are gone as well. And, um, but but uh, you and I, I think I can say I can say this from your book, and and I did this. I broke the cycle. Um, I gave That's love I to my children. About. Yeah, I broke the cycle of uh, making kids feel like they were unloved or pushing them too hard or you know being emotionally disconnected. You know, I changed that, and I can see my daughter with my grandchildren has changed it even more. She's a better mother than I was. Um, but what it did for me was it, and I can see this in your, in your book that it set me up that kind of treatment with being emotionally disconnected, not making me feel like I was okay in the world 
set me up to feel like an outsider and get defensive. And I saw this in your book where like you people, parents, you don't care about me. I don't need you. I don't need anyone. And it forces me to depend upon myself. So I became very independent and I'm smart. You're smart. And so we think we have all the answers and we kind of come into the world with a shield. Uh, I, I read that in your book and I'd love to hear what you have to say. You know, it's true. Uh, one of the things I had an older brother as well, but I did not feel that I had anybody that I could go to and ask questions of, yeah. you know, and it's funny. Uh, I've made clear with my son, you know, I am your guy. You got questions about anything. You come to me because I will help you answer. I will help you understand whatever's going on, even if I'm imperfect. Uh, He doesn't want to do that. You know, a lot of times he just, you know, keeps it to himself. So that's what I was doing. Uh, I don't know why I ended up, um, uh, there were uh, older brother, younger sister. I don't know why I ended up as the far more uh, closed off one. Yeah. You know, just family dynamics. Who knows? I can't explain it. You know, that's mm-hmm. just the way just the way it transpired. Uh, it, but I did. I thought that I could figure it out. And, you know, that delusion needed to be smashed. You know, yeah. I could not figure it out. When I started figuring it out, it was by stopping. You know, what I figured out was not whatever I was trying to figure out. It was that I couldn't figure it out. Right. You know, and, if, and if I was so smart, why was I so unhappy? Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's where that's where I got to. But and we were late in this. A lot of people get into this a lot earlier, the recovery. But at 34 years old, your weight was as high as 365 pounds. You entered a eating disorders unit on Long Island. You stayed there for nine weeks. Talk about talk about the shame of of obesity and the failed attempts at, at losing weight. I think anybody listening who might be a food addict would relate to that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So uh, because of what you say, that most could relate to it. Uh, you know, I don't know how much new I could add. You know, one thing that always sticks out to me is that, uh, as you said, I lost 130 pounds twice before I uh, began anything regarding recovery. And, uh, you know, I eventually gained all that back and more each time. Uh, but when you lose a large amount of weight and then you gain it back and so you're back where you started, you are not back where you started. You're much deeper much worse off because not only have you had this experience where it seemed like things were getting better and then they, and then, you know, it's not like overnight you've gained 130 pounds back. It's day by day of this. Oh my God, I'm still doing this. Oh my God, I'm doing this. I can't wait to do more of it. I I wish I couldn't, wouldn't do it and, and and all that. Uh, so you end up in a much deeper hole and, uh, uh, it is, I was demoralized. I was demoralized, yeah. you know, you know, one thing I just want to say, uh, my mother was yeah. her, you know, part of her, uh, approach was to be controlling. That's how she reacted with the world. But I kind of gave her some reason to try to want to control me because she could <laughs> see my life, even into my thirties was not working out like anybody wanted, not, not just like she wanted it for me. Like she knew that I, it wasn't working out the way I wanted it for me, you know? And, yeah. uh, so I tried to give her a pass on that too. Yeah, they want the best for us. They love us. They want the best. And they see us struggling. I mean, my my mom was always saying, gosh, you know, you're going to have to do something about your weight, you know, and exactly. doctors telling us that and none of that. Yeah. I mean, the negative consequences don't don't make a difference. But Phil Wardell focused on a couple of themes. And uh, this was my experience with him when I went through ACORN slash shift, and that is denial and powerlessness. And I'd like you to address those two themes you know, separately, and they are connected, of course, but denial, um, you know, I weighed 203 pounds at one point, I was size 18. I had high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, I've had four joint replacements. I was Mm. slowly killing myself and and, but we don't see it. My family was worried. Talk about denial. As I look back at the photos now, I see, you know, the denial, talk about denial and how it worked in your in your food addiction. Yeah, um, it's, you know, a big part of it is what I talked about earlier. If I, you know, how could anyone, here I am thinking, uh, you know, my head will save me. How could anyone look at the situation I had, uh, you know, that had created around me and think that's working out? That is the yeah. right way to go about it. How could anyone do that? And yet I did that, you know, yeah. and, uh, uh, 
uh, this is a stupid little example, but I went to uh, test drive a car once and I couldn't, you know, I, I, I had trouble getting back out of the car, you know, oh. just cause I was too big for the space. Yeah. And, uh, and instead of thinking this is wrong, I shouldn't be living a life where this could happen. I was trying to convince the salesman who I'd never met and never saw again and didn't make it. I was trying to convince him that I was okay. This looks like a problem. It's not, it's okay. That <laughs> is denial. Yes. Yes, indeed. And then the powerlessness, um, Phil, you know, wanted us, you know, to write about the powerlessness, you know, where, where is the incident where you had powerlessness? And for me, it was standing in a condo in Fort Myers beach in 2016 eating fudge and I couldn't stop. And he says, and I, and I think you put this in the book, there is a point at which all choice is lost. The power of choice is gone. The obsession, the compulsion take over and we can't stop once we start and powerlessness you say in here. And again, you probably found this somewhere else wanting to do something, but being, unwilling and unable to do it. So really not being able to stop when you start, right? Yeah, well, that's, you know, I got uh, decades of that behavior, that's for sure. Uh, as you mentioned, Phil had this thing called uh, uh, write about an incident of powerlessness. And and yeah. uh, his method was uh, you do the physical part and you go through this. It, first, it's just like a camera. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Then you go back and you fill in and you talk about uh, what I was feeling when this happened and this happened and this happened. Yep. And what was I thinking? And, uh, you know, I uh, what it was, for the, the moment for me was when I said, and I could have, when I was describing what's going on, I know I could have, you know, done something that would have been better, you know, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I stopped in the middle of the sentence that, no. I couldn't have. Maybe right. it would have been better if I did, but I couldn't have. And that is powerlessness. It's when I stopped thinking I had the power that I started to get power. That is a yes. paradox. I have looked uh, uh, into this in uh, Wikipedia. The paradox entry has 250 plus examples of paradoxes. And so paradox is not even that uncommon. And yeah. so... It, you know, it seems like it is and it isn't and it can't be. And so therefore I reject it. Well, that's, you know, you know, prayer to me is a paradox. I don't think yes. anybody, I don't think there is a white beard in the heaven sitting by the phone waiting to hear what I have to say. I don't think that is true at all. So I rejected it when in fact, millions of people for thousands of years have been engaging in this practice and they have been benefiting from it. So they were all, you know, idiots or I was the idiot. Yeah. We're going to talk about your where you went with higher power and God uh, a little bit later, but yeah, we talk about emotions and um, you know, for much of my life, and I think I read this in your book, uh, it was hard for me to tap into how I was feeling. I was working so hard, um, I was eating, I was drinking. Many of us are multi addicted. I know that you uh, had issues with other substances. You had a, a cigar addiction for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we go to other things. Uh, and when I got sober, I went to food even more. And so I couldn't, I couldn't, I recovered from alcohol using food. I couldn't do both at the same time, but you know, we're addicts and that's what we are. Uh, but talk right. about emotions and, and how, how difficult it was as a child and in your 20s 30s you didn't have your first girlfriend until you were 36 i read that's right so yeah talk about the emotions yeah what encapsulates that for me was being in a therapy setting early on and for the first time this guy asked me what i was feeling and i told him what i thought and that was that that's how i that's how i approached feelings what did i think you know and uh and even if the answer was, I think I'm afraid, you know, that's a thought. That's not a feeling. Yes. And so uh, I, I got to tell you, I recently dated a woman for three or four times. And she said, uh, you know, you weren't really interested in me at all. You know, mm -hmm. you weren't paying attention to me. 
uh, and uh, it, it brought up the same the same sort of feeling that I'm still doing that. You know, mm. that, uh, you know, my emotions are all wrapped up in what I'm about rather than what another person's about. Uh, just in case anybody, you know, I want to say I don't think I think I'm far better at that than I used to yes, be. Yes, I but I, I still got tell. that reflection from another, you know, independent human being. So it's still going on. Yeah. Well, we know in recovery and um, we don't talk about, we talk about 12 step recovery and we know that we have character flaws, you know, that um, they don't really go away. You know, I still have an ego, you know, I still get angry, you know, and I still want to control people, you know, uh, but I know when I do, I'm not grounded, peaceful, serene and free. And mm -hmm. so every day I wake up and that's the goal, you know, and people reflect, they say that you cannot know yourself by yourself. Okay. So this Good. woman that, like you, that yeah. you dated, yeah, you can't know yourself by yourself. So people, yeah. my family's very good at it. My kids are good at it. My husband, they tell me how I'm being, mm -hmm. you know, and I need to hear it. So these character flaws come up, but re what recovery does, what 12-step recovery does is get you to look at it, listen to it, and be open to it. Like there was probably a time when you would hear something like that and you're like, oh, she's full of it. You know, she, exactly. she doesn't know what she's talking Right. Exactly. But now you listen to it and you're like, hey, you know, she might be right. I wasn't listening to her. And that's the thing. You know, it, it, she might be right. It doesn't mean that she is right. Now you have to go about changing every part of me. I have to be present to hear that. And then I have to react. Oh, could this be something that I would benefit from knowing about rather than, yes. you know, she's a bitch and I need to just uh, find somebody else. Yeah, that's. That's what recovery's done for me is to really honestly look at myself. And um, so we're going to talk about your recovery. I want to get into what one of the things you said, which is, you know, recognizing what's going on, finally recognizing, you know, what's going on, you know, and really being open to it. But then the work begins, right? So on December 4th, 1999, I read in your book at 42 years old, you entered a five-day intensive food addiction treatment program, which was called ACORN, now called SHIFT, owned by Amanda Leith, uh, foodaddiction.com for our listeners. And that's where you got the click, as I said. And uh, so you went through, um, I, I went through SHIFT, as I said, um, and you were kind of a tough nut to crack from what I gathered. Uh, you realized <laughs> that it was not about the food and weight. And you said there was more work, which remained for me, which you'd been in therapy. You'd been, you'd lost weight, you'd gone to the place in Long Island, but you were still resistant and, and uh, questioning how they were doing things and if this would even work. So I think, talk about the, talk about uh, uh, ACORN and, and getting in there. And then when you finally realized that, you know what, I, I, I think I've got this. I, I'm going to surrender. Um, it was really yeah. profound. Um, you know, I, I did go to the five day in Louisville and it was, a, you know, I spent time on it in the book and it was a really important thing. You know, my memory at 66 is uh, not as great as it used to be. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I had been to events with Phil and with Mary uh, even before that. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, just, you know, I know that I, I sure didn't come up with this one either. You know, it just takes what it takes. You know, uh, you talk about the click and I and I definitely uh, understand what you're talking about. Uh, but for me, it was a really long click. It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, you know, right in. It was like it was forever. And it it, it, it takes what it takes. And, it, and I was a hard case relative to my own image of myself, uh, you know. So. One of the things um, that you say in the book is dependable recovery has a spiritual component. Mm. But for years, and I think I could say I'm, I was like this, you fought the God thing, the higher power thing that 12-step recovery talks. Uh, but you, 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 I think, were at peace with it. You found your own higher power and your God. Talk about that. Sure. Well, you know, I love talking about this. And I came in. You know, arrogant, militant, and confused. I thought God was an asshole, and I thought that he didn't exist. And anyone with a brain can figure out that you can't be anything if you don't exist. So I was really confused, but I was passionate in uh, my position. 
Uh, and now I get on my knees almost every morning and um, uh, uh, very often at night. Uh, at night, I, I don't get on my knees, but I uh, before I go to sleep, I just say, you know, thank you for everything that happened today. And it doesn't matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's a little harder, but I know that it's all how I react to it. So it can all be good if I just, uh, you know, approach it that way. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, not only do I pray every day, one of the prayers and, uh, you know, I did not conceive this, or I don't think of it as a product of my intellectual mind, but I, every day I ask for, please God, help me to be filled to overflowing with your love so that I cannot possibly help, but splash it on every single living being I come in contact with. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, earlier I would, uh, at an earlier time in my life, I decided that uh, I wanted to get along better in the world. And one way I could do that was just to smile. You know, when any, whenever, walking down the street, just, you know, smile in, at the person approaching yeah. you instead of uh, having a blank reaction. And I noticed mm-hmm. after a long time that that was also fake. It was a good try, but it was also fake. I didn't want to have a habit of smiling. I wanted to be smiling. To have it come from my heart right, and feel it, and uh, yeah. and all of that is for me higher power related. You know that that's where that comes from. Yeah, I love a couple of the things here with how you reconciled God and higher power, and a couple of these are. You say that, uh, um, you know, in twelve step recovery, we say, "What would God have me do?" And you, in the book, you say, what would love have me do? Yeah, well, love that. thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah. You know, that's uh, the transitive property of mathematics, uh, which, you know, I say just because it's, you know, makes me look, you know, nerdy. Uh, yeah. I may, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to make, make fun of myself. My point is, is that I sometimes I don't get a burning bush. Sometimes I have never seen a burning bush ever. Okay, so to know, you know, uh, I'm supposed to seek God's will, and how do I know what God's will is? And uh, but I had, you know, discovered again, not the first person uh, to do that, that uh, God and love are the same thing. And so, if I couldn't decide what God would have me do, this ethereal, unknowable being, well, I could substitute love. What would love have me do? And if I did the more loving act, even if it didn't work out. I could always look back instead of saying, fool, what were you thinking about? Oh, I have a method and I was following a path that I followed before and that's following love. And never, there have been many times when I thought back and thought, gee, I wish I hadn't have been so nasty. But I've never thought, gee, I wish I hadn't have been so loving. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, The other thing I loved was uh, a couple of relatives in your life when you were younger that you, you know, kind of place them as your higher power, your Uncle Joe and your Uncle Albert. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these are two guys that were both, uh, neither of them married. So they had uh, relatively more time to uh, pay attention to me. And, uh, you know, I knew that uh, they wanted the best for me. You know, and it's not like they ever said, yes. Michael, I want the best for you. I just knew it, you know, they, the way they, uh, you knew it. and, uh, um, you know, as, you know, I think I said in the book, you know, God should be so good. Someone who just wants the best for me. Yeah. You know, and yes. uh, um, it was easy. I, I don't think of, I think of them, but I don't think of them as I did when I was trying to, you know, one of the concepts is uh, you uh, make up your own version of your higher power. Right. And so I, I made it up with them. And, uh, right. And so I, I literally, well, you know, I could, I, I imagine them being on my shoulders, you know, what would they have me do mm-hmm. if I didn't yeah. know? And, uh, right. yeah. So, uh, uh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about the click and I just want to make the point, uh, in terms of the click for me, and we talk about bottoms, um, for me at the end of my food addiction. And when, when I got into recovery and said, I'm done, I, uh, food and sugar beat me in a fair fight. And I now have to surrender and listen to what you people are telling me to do, you know, and that's how I recovered. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear that that's how you recovered. So that the click and the bottom, I think can be, I don't want to say interchangeable, but you know, it was the, la- it was the end of the road, you know, for me. And I think that's what I heard in, uh, at uh, your experience with Acorn, um, at the end of the intensive, and you were a tough nut. I mean, Mary kind of spotted your anger when you came in. 
um, you dealt with some pretty strong emotional trauma at the end. And um, talk about that. And you actually cried at the end. So you realized some things when you got in there. And I think that to me, that to me, that was a shift for you. It's funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did cry. And I, I, uh, I remember, uh, I don't remember who gave me the reflection, but they said, uh, you know, uh, I looked down and there were tears on my shirt and I was, and, and it looked, they said it looked to them like I thought I was bleeding or something like, oh, my God, what happened here? You know, that it was so foreign. And I got to say, uh, I do not cry today. And I, I think it's a sign of emotional uh, maturity and health to cry. And I think crying is yes. good. And I haven't cried in years. Yeah, it's hard to cry. You know, I don't cry very much. I, I can be moved to tears, but <clears throat> I think it's. I think it's how we're wired. Um, we have the ability to cry. If, if something was bad enough in your life, you would cry, right? But if you're moved, so moved. Maybe, you know, and, and I used to think I was a bad person because everybody knows when that happens, you're supposed to cry. Uh, and I don't anymore. You know, I'm, I am who I am and it's just fine the way yeah. I am. But I think that's a area of future growth. Or uh, uh, AFGO, yeah. as my friends say, another effing growth opportunity. Uh, but it, yes, yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so you were at the at the end of you know at, in shift, and you recognized the anger. And I think I know Phil and and some of the work that goes on there. They brought that out of you, and I think what you realized was, uh, I think you in the book you say you had some anger toward your mother, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that you say anger was a stand-in for sadness. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I, I usually have pointed out by now when I'm in a setting like this that uh, my, my professional training is as a journalist. Uh, so uh, anything I say, like what I'm about to say now, take it with a grain of salt because I'm a journalist. I'm not, I'm not trained. But it's my strong opinion that uh, people who show sadness to the world are often angry. And people who show anger yes. to the world are often sad. And somehow one mm. became, showing one became more permissible. And in some cases, certainly uh, angry people, it's more rewarding. You know, you get control and, you know, uh, and uh, so uh, I do believe that uh, I was sad with how things were working out. And my reaction to it was to lash out. Uh, it's a parlor trick. I discovered this in rehab. Uh, my last name is P-R-A-G-E-R. And you kind of, if you're listening, you kind of have to write it down to see it. But if you take the first letter and the last letter off my word, you're left with R-A-G-E. And, and that was such, mm -hmm. that was a reflection of who wow. I had become. And I just want to say that mm -hmm. uh, the counselor, uh, one of the counselors in the room when I uh, showed that, uh, I, I made a poster of it uh, and the R-A-G-E were all red, yellow and, uh, you know, on fire. Uh, um, and she said, that's really interesting, but I think it would be better, uh, if you could find some other thing that would, uh, represent, uh, that you could do with your name wordplay, you know, which again, for somebody like me is, uh, and, uh, she was right. It was easy. P-R-A-G-E-R. -E if you change the G to a Y, you get prayer. Oh, prayer. I love and it. that's, that's the title of one of my chapters from rage to prayer. And it's my spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. But you were you were angry at your mom, not to sound like in, you're in psychotherapy, but <laughs> what, what was the anger about? You know, it was all, you know, deep. The control. Uh, and, you know, and, I, I don't I don't parse it out like that, you know, and, and, and yeah. I was angry at my mom, but I was angry at everybody. I don't think I was, you know, like yeah. Mondo angry at her and only just a little ticked off at everybody else. I mean, it was, it, mm -hmm. they, uh, well uh anger is how i interacted with the world it's how i interface with the world and uh you know i wouldn't recommend it to anyone but everyone has their own path and if that's what works for them until they find that it's not working for them uh you know go to it but uh yeah i i, yeah. I, I if i i haven't read my book in a little while uh i uh, don't uh you know the way i look at it today is that i had lots of anger uh toward the world and now mm -hmm. I have less anger. And when I'm angry, yeah. I can be angry without being uh, acting angry. And 
my yeah. life, I'm so much happier now because of that. You know, not yeah. just that, but including that. Well, we talk about how our lives transform in food addiction recovery. You've been recovered uh, in recovery for 35 years, and you have experienced a full life transformation. Um, and you said in an interview I heard, uh, my life has transformed. I am a far more loving person, more willing to accept and consider other people's opinions. So talk about your transformation and recovery, what, yeah. what, you've, what you've learned. Yeah. I don't know when I said that or when, you know, I know, I, I know when I wrote the book, but if it was in an interview, you know, it could have been any time. And what I would say is that that's almost certainly more true now than it was then. Yeah. Okay. Did I make you cry? <laughs> wow. Uh, Better than I thought I was at this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I uh, was talking about it a little bit earlier. You know, I pray every day imperfectly. Uh, my son was late for school today. I did not get on my knees this morning, but I can still do that later. I be more uh, uh, loving toward everyone that I meet. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. there is a service aspect to that, but it, it's also like forgiveness. It's also a selfish act. I move through the world today in uh, the company of someone who is more accepting, more loving toward others, and again, not perfect. And I and I slip. I just I'm not uh, I'm not a uh, an angel. Yeah. Uh, but me neither. But um, I am in the company of myself, uh, who is you know more shining in the world than grumbly. And that who yeah. who pick your pick your companion. Who do you who would you rather have? Someone who's grumbly or someone who's shiny? Well, who would you rather have? Yeah. That's really kind of like, you you know, that's that's the thing about this disease is, you know, when I was when I was younger, you know, in my thirties, forties, I was I was angry. I mean, I, anger is one of my character defects, and and um, you know, I responded I responded to the world defensively, like you can't do that to me, mm-hmm. I, you know. So I'm a different person now, and and that's what I see in you. As a matter of fact, when you left Boston Globe and you were married at the time and you decided to be a stay-at-home dad, I thought, wow, that's that's a big change. And I can just tell you love your son. Well, here, here's the thing. I uh, uh, did not want to be a dad. I thought I had sacrificed 30 years of my life to my disease, and now I just wanted to yeah. enjoy the benefits of it. But I met a woman who wanted to be a mom, and it was just a package deal. And now we're yes. divorced and he's the most important thing in my life. So if I ever, sure, if I ever want to think that uh, I know what's best for me, I only think of that, you know, I just have to show up a day at a time, do the footwork and give up the outcome. Right. What would love have me do? Exactly. You say, um, let, we're going to shift our discussion here as we close out, um, and talk about what's going on in our society. Uh, we know that not all obese people are food addicts. Definitely not. And not all food addicts are obese people. Mm-hmm. And that there are eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And compulsivity, as you make the point, uh, is a psychiatric mental health disorder. And, and it gets tricky here uh, with compulsive eaters. And you say in the book, and I believe this, that there are a lot more food addicts out there than we than we think. I mean, you just have to walk out in the world and mm-hmm. you see obesity, incredible amounts of obesity. And it's said by the year 2030 that, and that's just six years from now, that virtually half of Americans will be obese, not overweight, obese. So talk about the obesity in our country as it might relate to food addiction, sugar addiction. Uh, you know, when I started spouting that uh, statistic, it was uh, 33%. And uh, I believe mm-hmm. we are now over 40. Uh, so clearly, something's not working, you know. And, uh, you yeah. know, I was, uh, uh, as, as you've said, I was an advocate in this area for a long time. So I have a lot of facts that may still be true. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the stats might have changed and stuff like that because I'm not as active in it as I used to be. But uh, as I said earlier, if you don't know, you have 
a problem, then you're not going to seek a solution for that problem. You're going to look at it as something else. And uh, one thing I liked that you said was that it's so complicated. Compulsive overeater, well, that's the C of OCD, and that is a, a uh, recognized uh, not that compulsive overeating is recognized, but uh, it's a recognized psychiatric disorder. And as you said, uh, the uh, problem of addiction originates in the mind, uh, and uh, the, but it's also in the uh, biochemistry. You know, yes. two drunks go into a bar. It sounds like a joke, but two drunks go into uh, two people go into a bar. One ends up uh, in the gutter, and one goes home to bed. Why didn't the substance affect those people? The exact, you know, the same way or even close to the same way. Some people have a biochemical sensitivity to some substances. I choose not to eat yeah. any refined sugar or any refined grain. And I just find that my life is better and happier that way. Uh, it's not a political issue. Right. It's not an emotional issue. It's just a fact for me. And I think right. I've often said that I think that if, uh, say, everyone listening to our conversation made a solemn oath and they really meant it to go without refined sugar and refined grain for say 30 days enough for it to uh uh rinse out of the body uh that a third of them would make the decision not to go back because now that they had actually experienced life without those things they found it was better for them so they weren't trying to impress anybody they were, yeah. weren't, weren't trying to you know be a good doobie they were just experiencing something that was better for them and, uh, yeah. and, you know, I say that as a statistic, you know, a third wouldn't. And the fact is, I know that nobody will ever disprove that because most people, you make a suggestion like that, they say, are you kidding me? I would rather die. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, a lot of people can, you know, a lot of us think, well, I just have to, you know, have, let, yeah, exactly. You know, cut down on the desserts. Uh, and for some people yeah. that's true. But for people like us, it is never true. Yeah. Moderation. I mean, you talk about moderation in there. And my husband is a naturally thin man and been married for 41 years. In 1986, I saw him throw away a half-eaten ice cream cone. And I remember where we were and how he did it. And it's just like <laughs> I was shocked. He's throwing away that ice, what that perfectly good ice him? cream cone. Yes. What's wrong with him? You know, so that's that's an addict, you know, like I would not have I would have finished the ice cream cone. There's no way I wouldn't have. So like you like you say in in your book and we say in the, in uh, 12 step recovery, try some controlled eating. Mm -hmm. Can you eat just a packet of M&Ms if you have three or four more in your house? You know, can you eat just one and stop? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're an emotional eater and you deal with the emotions, you know, you should be able to recover with when you deal with the emotions. But food addicts, because of our brains, we're different. Well, and, and as you said, it's so complicated because you could be both. You could have the, the, yes. the genetic predisposition to addiction, but never be exposed to a substance that triggers that uh, disposition. Uh, and as you said, uh, a lot of people eat over emotion and they can or trauma and they can deal with the roots of the trauma. And if uh, they haven't yet crossed over. So flick, you know, flick that switch where addiction, you know, the, the expression is, you know, uh, I'm a cucumber, I'm a cucumber. Now I'm a pickle and a pickle never goes back yeah. to being a cucumber. It's changed and you can't go right. back. So you could have, be a compulsive eater based on compulsion, based on trauma and resolve the trauma. And if you haven't crossed over, then you can just go back to eating normally. Because you don't have the trigger to, right. that forces you there. But once you've crossed over, so there are people who have OCD but don't have the genetic predisposition. There are people who have the genetic predisposition but are never exposed to the substance that triggers it. So it's just so complicated. We're not saying that food addiction is the only thing, is the only answer, the only explanation for what's going on in America. We're saying it's one explanation and it's a significant explanation. And if we can enlighten people open up their minds to something they think is crazy. What do you mean food addiction? You need food to exist. How can I be addicted to something I need to exist? Well, there, there is an answer for that. I don't know if we have time for it, but there is an answer to that. Yeah. We're going to go on to our final question. It's about the DSM-5, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which issues diagnostic criteria from the American Psychiatric Association to determine what is an addiction. So 
Currently, food addiction, sugar addiction is not recognized as a substance use disorder. A lot of people are working on this, including uh, the owner of this podcast, Esther Helga Goodman-Stotier, uh, Ashley Gerhardt, Dr. Lustig. Uh, we all want to see food addiction included in the DSM-5 as a substance use disorder. Um, and that's when insurance will pay for the treatment. Mm-hmm. So talk about, as we close out here, the DSM-5. And, and I know you have some writing in here about in your book. Well, it's the same thing we, uh, we were just talking about. Uh, that is, that would be a sterling institutional recognition that this is more than just a bad habit. So that's why it's important. You know, that's that's what Phil dedicated his life to was to uh, enlighten, let people know that this also exists and that it is true for a lot of people. And uh, uh, uh it is important. Uh, I, I was recently asked. Uh, I'm a co-founder of the Food Addiction Institute, and yes, I, I know, and I am that. Thank you because I because I was with Phil and Mary. You know, uh, yeah, we'd like you back. By the way, uh, actually, I put in a, a resume. We'll see what. I don't know what the process is, but uh, yeah, it's uh, wonderful. Uh, you know, and uh, I was asked. Uh, the weekend of Phil's memorial, you know, what do we need to do? What's the most important thing we need to do? And it is just this. It is public education. You can't seek help for something you don't know you have. And and if you know that it exists, then you can can at least start to think, well, could I have it? What would would that mean for me? Mm -hmm. How would I know? And you start exploring different questions than you've explored up until then. And so that's the most important thing we can do is to, uh, you know, the DSM five is, or the DSM is just whatever number they put on it next uh, Mm -hmm. is just official recognition of what we already know. Right. Yeah. There are seven requirements as you outline the book. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say them all, but tolerance, withdrawal, unintended use. There are seven things. And just like alcohol, I mean, alcohol, um, drugs are in the DSM and there is treatment for them. Mm-hmm. We need to have food addiction in there and sugar addiction. And, uh, so yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole different, uh, program. Um, and we're all, we're all working for it and I'd love to see you back on the board. So, uh, we have a board meeting coming up. I will vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I love the book, Fat Boy, Thin Man. And we'll put the link in uh, how to buy the book in our notes. And Esther and I appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on an incredible journey in recovery from food addiction. Thank you. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, we both are. Very fortunate. And I know it. Thanks for your time. Thanks. For, Thank you. Thanks to, to Esther for asking me. And uh, it was a lovely conversation. Thank you for listening to the Food Addiction Podcast. We hope you both enjoyed the episode and learned more about how food addiction is recognized and treated. Please rate and write a review on this podcast and share it with others. If you or someone you know is suffering from the disease of food addiction, there is a solution with trained professionals at the Infect School. You can become a food addiction informed and certified as a food addiction professional, as well as receive your own treatment through the various training, certification, and treatment programs offered at the Infact School. Go to infactschool.com, that's I-N-F-A-C-T, school.com to learn more.